That's a lot of people if you think about how many people were in your high school. About one in 20 people in the United States will be diagnosed with colorectal cancer during their lifetime. But we need enough vegans and vegetarians and pescatarians and semi-vegetarians. We need enough of those people to really study this. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us in more than 130 countries and healthy cities coast to coast in the U.S. Casper, Wyoming, Richmond, Virginia, Rancho Cucamonga, California. We appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 21 of season 5, number 320 overall. Dr. Will Bolsowitz is back with us here today, best-selling author of Fiber Fueled. And this episode is especially dedicated to saving lives because we are putting cancer in the crosshairs, talking specifically about colorectal cancer here on The Exam Room Live. Now, before we get going, did you know that rates of colorectal cancer among young adults are way up? This is not just an old person's disease anymore. Doctors are diagnosing more and more people under the age of 50, and sadly, that means that more and more people are losing their lives far too soon. And why is that? Is poor gut health to blame? Maybe food is the biggest factor. The standard American diet, is that what is doing this, or... Could fermented food, on the flip side, be the ticket to a healthier gut and less cancer? And what about fiber-rich foods? Maybe it's more than food. Maybe it's the fact that we don't move around enough. So what about our sedentary lifestyle? Could getting up from the desk or getting up from the couch and going out for a walk, could that be the answer to our cancer problem here? And in terms of prevention as well, another factor, we're going to talk about a big one. What else you can do to lower your risk of getting cancer? We're going to find out what that is momentarily with my good friend, the Gut Health MD. Also on the show today, interesting new research showing that there is another risk factor for cancer that is far too often overlooked. We always talk about weight and obesity in terms of cancer, but what about your height? Could how tall you are determine your chances of developing cancer? Well, a new study looks at just that. And I will have details on that in a little while when we head to the exam room news desk. But first, our conversation with Dr. Will Bolsowitz, a life-saving Q&A from the exam room live. Dr. B, thanks for being here, my friend. Chuck Carroll, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Hey, I actually am in a brand new studio. Chuck, I, I've actually given a name to the studio. Have you now? Have yeah, you? What, what is the it's name? Anonymous. Yeah. Uh, it's it, this is the Charles Carroll, Charles Carroll recording studio that I'm now working in professionally. Uh, for those of you who are, have no clue what I'm talking about <laughs> and, and don't get my strange sense of humor. Um, Chuck what is a good friend of mine and was generous enough to actually fly down to Charleston. And we hung out. We had a great time. Um, but he also helped me to actually set up my entire recording studio. So right here, I have a beautiful new microphone. 
And right there, I have a beautiful new soundboard. And against these entire walls, including some of the ceiling, I have sound foam to try to improve the quality of my voice. So I hope it's worked out. Oh, you've got studio quality, man. You're ready to do the uh, the voiceover for your next book. I'm telling you, like, you know, if, if there's an audio version of the cookbook, I don't I don't know that there will be. But I'd say just go ahead and voice it yourself. You sound I'm crystal actually, clear. I'm actually going to do that. Are you? Oh. Well, not the whole book because I, I don't have enough time to do the whole book. It takes a lot of time. But I am going to do parts of the book. And I'm also going to add some like I'm hoping to add some bonus sections so that people uh uh, are excited to get the audiobook. Like I'm going to add some extra elements in there. Oh, that's fantastic, man. And and you certainly have the setup for it. And yeah, we did have a blast. And by the way, I had no idea that the the plant-based scene in Charleston um was as healthy as it was. I mean, we hit a couple of slamming restaurants that had some phenomenal plant-based options on there. There you go. But yeah, man, I mean, we, it was just a fantastic time and uh the the two days I was down there, they just flew right by, but I'm glad that we got the sound, but let's help the people out, my friend. You ready to do that? Let's do it. All Let's right. Go. So we're going to open up the doctor's mailbag. That means get your questions in right now. Put them in the comments or in the chat. You can send them to me on Twitter or Instagram at Chuck Carroll WLC. We're going to get to as many as we possibly can here today. And right off the top, Dr. B, I want to talk to you about colorectal cancer because this is something obviously as a gastroenterologist that is near and dear to your heart. But recently, you also got a dose of your own medicine and did uh, what you have said is perhaps the uh, single most important step in cancer prevention. You uh, right there. Where are you right there? Tell us what's happening. Please don't judge me based on this photo, everyone at home. Um, so it was a moment where I dropped my guard from a professional perspective. And I had just finished doing receiving a colonoscopy. I had my first colonoscopy. Uh, there's a family history of advanced colon polyps. And so because of that, I actually started colon cancer screening at an earlier age. And, you know, I think that the important thing that I want to get across, so ignore the fact that I'm being a little bit over the top or maybe really over the top with this photo. But I, I was excited because I found out that I was safe. And that's what I was really on a mission to find out in getting this colonoscopy at an early age. I just wanted to know that I was safe. The problem is that colorectal cancer is affecting far too many people in the United States. Like literally 150,000 people are going to be diagnosed in 2022 alone. And this is beginning to affect people who are my age at an increasing rate, at a rate that I find to be disturbing. We've discovered that rectal cancer is four times more likely in people who are born around 1990 relative to people who were born in 1950. Mm. Colon cancer, twice as likely in people who are born in 1990 compared to 1950. It's a radical change. Do we know why that is? I mean, because uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but the overall rates are going down. But it is this younger demographic, though, that you, you were just saying that the rates are so much higher. So what what is happening there? Yeah. So and that's a great point. Overall rates are going down, but they're not going down because of our diet and lifestyle. Overall rates are going down because people after age 50 are getting colonoscopies. Not all of them, far too many of them are not. And there are alternative choices if you're not gonna get a colonoscopy. But to me, a colonoscopy, I mean, you can see the choice that I made. I'm a gastroenterologist. This is literally what I've been doing for a living. And given the choices that I had, I chose to get a colonoscopy. I'm happy to run through some of the reasons behind that, but 
the point from my perspective is that when we get past age 50, we've actually bent the curve. What that means is that we actually have seen that since we started doing this colonoscopy program in people after age 50, we've seen a reduction in the incidence of new cases of colon cancer. We're actually preventing new cases, not just finding them early. We're preventing new cases. And this is despite our diet, despite our lifestyle, despite the health issues in the United States that actually are risk factors. But why is there this shift towards younger people, Chuck? You know, we used to think of this as, oh, only people after age 50 get colon cancer. That is not true. I have diagnosed tons of people in their 40s, and it every single time, it is completely heartbreaking because you know they're just like me. They have a young family. And you know, if we could have only done a colonoscopy earlier for those people. So Steve, let me let me jump in here because I know that this is a a really kind of controversial topic, especially in the health circles. Um, I want to jump right to a question from Stephen. And Stephen's question at 1212 is how can they prevent? And you tell us, I don't think that it's necessarily a matter of prevention, but catching it early. Is that right? It, it actually is. It actually, there, there are ways, there are ways that we can go about this, Chuck, but I think it's important. So, you know, my view on healthcare, diet, and lifestyle is that we are foolish to do one and not the other, right? We're giving up opportunities to do things to improve our health if we choose one and not the other. Our healthcare system does nothing with diet and lifestyle. That's a huge problem. Diet and lifestyle is a great opportunity for us to reduce the burden of colon cancer, but it is not 100%. And if you believe that it is 100%, you are wrong. It is not 100%. You can eat the perfect diet, exercise, sleep, have zero stress. There is still a very real risk of developing colorectal cancer. Flip side, we are foolish if we only do diet and lifestyle and we say, well, I don't want to do healthcare, right? I don't want to take advantage of preventative screenings that are available to me that I've already paid for with my health insurance. So to me, the best is taking both worlds, bringing them together. I mean, frankly, this is what I'm trying to do in my professional career is to say, yo, Western medicine, what are y'all doing? We need diet and lifestyle. But flip side, y'all in the diet and lifestyle space, like you need to get your colonoscopy. This is how you stay safe. So to me, it's about doing both. The diet that is best in terms of preventing colorectal cancer is a high fiber diet. Um, it's stuff that I've talked about in my book. Fiber feeds microbes, colorectal cancer. The origins are actually in the gut microbiome, Chuck. So disturbances of the gut microbiome can manifest way downstream years later with colorectal cancer. And part of the way that you know this, it's quite fascinating. They've been able to teach dogs to smell cancer. Like dogs can literally smell it. All right. So it's a, it's a gut microbiome problem when we consume fiber. We feed the gut microbes, they release short-chain fatty acids, and those short-chain fatty acids directly attack precancerous cells and disrupt the process that ultimately can lead to cancer. Fiber is our friend in the fight against colorectal cancer. In a study by Andrew Reynolds published in The Lancet in 2019, he showed not only does fiber reduce the risk of colorectal cancer, I'm talking about dietary fiber. Not only does it reduce the risk of colorectal cancer, but it's actually a dose response, meaning that more fiber, more protection. 
but that doesn't mean that 100 grams of fiber per day reduces your risk to zero. You still need to get a colonoscopy. This is why I had my colonoscopy, even though I eat a whole food plant-based diet with tons of diversity, you still need to get your colonoscopy because there's a very real risk. And I've had people who refuse colonoscopy on the grounds that their diet and lifestyle is so good. And then they get cancer mm -hmm. and they wish that they could change that decision. And what do we know about the rates of colorectal cancer for people who are eating that plant-based diet versus people eating the standard American diet? If you look at the, you know, we often, uh, uh, when we're creating inferences about dietary patterns, you know, one of the challenges is that colorectal cancer is a moderately rare event. I mean, it's, this is not like a super rare event. We're not talking about one in a thousand. We're talking about one in 20. That's a lot of people. If you think about how many people were in your high school, about one in 20 people in the United States will be di diagnosed with colorectal cancer during their lifetime. It's a lot. Hmm. So, but we need enough vegans and vegetarians and pescatarians and semi-vegetarians. We need enough of those people to really study this. So what do we do? We turn to the Adventist health studies and this Adventist health studies, because within the Seventh-day Adventist community, there's a, there's a disproportionate number of vegans and semi-vegetarians and, and vegetarians. We're able to take a look. And what, what we see, Chuck, when you look at that, again, this is, the Seventh-day Adventists, and most would argue that their form of a vegan diet is not a junk food vegan diet. They're actually eating a very healthy vegan diet. And within that study, there's about a 22% reduction in the risk of colorectal cancer. That's not something to besmirch. Like, that's not something to diminish. That's a great thing. Like, 22% less colorectal cancer. I will jump with joy because that is that translates into tens of thousands of people in the United States that don't have to go through this. But the flip side is that there's still 78% that still end up getting it. Mm -hmm. And that's still a way too many cases. So this is why we need these programs. No question. And really quickly, before we open it up to the floor uh, to take questions from the exam roomies. So you just got your colonoscopy uh, this past month. When would you schedule your next one? Is it every five years? So uh, I'll speak for myself and explain the circumstances. And then, but then I want to open this up and, and explain more. Uh, I want to put on my gastroenterologist hat for a moment. So for myself, I have a family history of colon polyps, not just polyps, but actually advanced colon polyps. And so as a result of that, I started screening for colon cancer at an earlier age. And because of that, even though I did not have any polyps on this colonoscopy, amen, I'm so grateful for that, but I am going to come back in five years for my next colonoscopy. Um, now, for a person who's considered average risk, meaning that you don't have any family history of colorectal cancer or advanced colon polyps, without that, then most people in the United States are going to start colon cancer screening at age 45. This may vary if you're in a different country. So screening programs vary by country. You need to talk to your doctor. But the point from my perspective is to take this seriously and when the window of opportunity opens where it's like okay now you're at an age where you're allowed to do this do it as early as possible because this shift towards younger populations says to us that we need to be vigilant about trying to find things before they happen as much as we can so most people would begin colon cancer screening at age 45 in the united states that's a new recommendation it used to be 50 we just changed it because of our concerns about what we're seeing out there with the shift towards younger people. And if you have a negative colonoscopy, if you don't have any colon polyps, 
then you would come back in 10 years. It's once every 10 years. That's not that big of a deal. Uh, and flip side, if you did have polyps, then we would tailor the recommendation on when to come back based upon how many polyps, what kind of polyps, that kind of stuff. We would figure it out. And true or false, if a person tends to have a healthier gut, generally speaking, their risk of colorectal cancer would be lower, correct? Uh, true. That would be true. If you have a healthier gut microbiome does reduce the risk of colorectal cancer. But again, I have had people who uh, are yoga instructors who eat a plant-based diet and they meditate three times a day and they develop colorectal cancer or they have very, very advanced polyps. So I wish I could claim that I know going into a colonoscopy who's going to have polyps or advanced polyps or cancer. I wish I could claim that I knew that. I don't know that. It's not a highly predictable thing. There are elements to this that are beyond our control. And for that reason, again, like my message to everyone today is play it safe. Take advantage of the screening that is available to you, either through the health insurance that you pay, pay for or through the government programs that are in your country. All right, let's get some specific questions here. We'll start with Steffi. Uh, we talk a lot about fermented food when you're on the show. I know you're a big fan of sauerkraut. So Steffi is wondering whether fermented foods have been shown to help prevent cancer. Oh gosh, that's a great question. Well, what we do know is this. If you take, if you take uh, cabbage, cabbage is a cruciferous vegetable. It also happens to be high in fiber. It contains these phytochemicals called isothiocyanates. Isothiocyanates are fighters against cancer. These are, these are chemicals that you get from plants that have been shown to reduce our risk of developing cancer. So, well, that's, that's the backbone of sauerkraut or kimchi. And um, quite simply, all you have to do is add water and salt, and it will transform itself in a number of days into sauerkraut. So I haven't seen any studies that have directly connected fermented foods to a reduced risk of cancer. But we, what we do have is this. We know that the gut microbiome is connected to our risk of cancer. You asked me the true or false question. I said, true. Those with a healthier gut are at reduced risk of developing colorectal cancer. Well, there was a new study that just came out last summer, Chuck, by Dr. Christopher Gardner at Stanford. And what they showed is that by introducing fermented foods on a daily basis, actually a pretty large amount of fermented foods, but nonetheless... Introducing fermented foods on a daily basis allowed people to add diversity to their gut microbiome. So if we were to take that idea and extrapolate it, although I don't have the evidence to completely back this up, my expectation is that this reduces our risk of developing colorectal cancer. And it's still high in fiber. We know that. And so we're talking about a healthy uh, biome here, exploring flavors at 12.12. I think this is a phenomenal question. Is it ever really too late to fix your biome? That is a great question. Um, so I, there are many things about the longitudinal ability to change the gut microbiome that we don't yet know. I welcome new research. I view what we currently have with a sense of humility, recognizing that the things that I say today could change next year. Um, but I choose an optimistic viewpoint to this question. Uh, we know that the gut microbiome can shift, can adapt, can change. It can, it can change to the choices that you make. It can be improved, enhanced, fortified. I just mentioned one study, which was a fermented food study, where in a number of weeks, they added diversity to their gut microbiome. There are other studies out there for different approaches that are similar in the sense that there are different ways in which we can change and improve our gut microbiome. So I'm of the belief that our gut microbiome 
can be improved, can be enhanced. Um, and the extent of how far we can take it is the question in my mind. It's not a question of can we do it? Can we make it better? Yes, we can. The question is how far can we take it? And that's, you know, there are limitations to each of us, Chuck. Like if my goal is to become as strong as I possibly can on the bench press, well, I can really make myself way stronger in terms of the bench press. Can I bench press 500 pounds? No, but like, I'm still very strong on the bench press. Isn't that what matters? Oh, I think if you put your mind to it, you could put up five bills on that. No problem, Dr. B. Um, question from TR from uh, Canada checking in today. Thanks for checking in. Uh, what foods and how should I introduce them back into my gut right after the colonoscopy? So they're looking at, I guess, uh, almost resetting their microbiome right after the colonoscopy because you've been emptied out. Yeah, this is actually, this is a great question. Uh, one that I often get with regard when I talk about colonoscopies or things around colonoscopies. And I'm actually doing a thorough breakdown on this topic in my newsletter to people who are on my list this Friday. So if you guys are interested in hearing my full breakdown on this topic, sign up for my news newsletter at the plant fed gut. But the, the short of it, Chuck, is that the research indicates that our gut microbiome does have a change that takes place after we do a cleanse or a flush for colonoscopy. And that, that change does exist for about two weeks. So we have this two-week window where we have an opportunity to enhance and um, restore our gut biome by treating it properly. So it is a vulnerability. It also is an opportunity to do the best and uh, feed it the best way. So like, what did I do? Well, after I was done with my colonoscopy, I took a prebiotic fiber supplement and I immediately had a plant-based meal. We want plant-based eating before colonoscopy and we want plant-based eating after colonoscopy. And the reason why is that fiber is the fuel for our gut microbes. That's what they want. So, but I didn't go and have a raw salad. That would be putting my gut microbiome when it's in a state of vulnerability to work with a little bit more than perhaps it could handle. Instead, what I did is I went with simple stuff. So I actually had a black bean soup. It's beans, it's high in fiber, it's got resistant starches, but it's also cooked and softened. Soft and cooked is where I would recommend that people begin. There are some other things that I talk about in this newsletter that's coming out on Friday. So it's, it may be worth checking out for people who are interested. And there's a link to that right now in the show description. So if you just want to click on over and get yourself signed up as you're watching us today, go for it. Um, I'm going to combine two questions from Jessica and Juliet. Uh, Jessica, unfortunately, is asking the question, what should you eat if you've been diagnosed with cancer? And then Juliet's question is, will eating a vegan diet reduce the risk of the colorectal cancer returning? Uh, I can answer both of those questions with, with, with one word, yes. <laughs> so the because because the, there have been studies where they have looked at people after the diagnosis of colorectal cancer and the increase in uh, dietary fiber increases life expectancy reduces risk of recurrence so um from my perspective the goal here whether you were on the diet beforehand or not the goal is to shift your tor yourself towards a plant-based diet so that you can properly fuel and support a healthy gut biome and simultaneously 
just absolutely bathe it in short chain fatty acids because when those short chain fatty acids specifically butyrate are there that's the path that we have that we want in terms of protecting ourselves and charlie's wondering other than poor diet um and family history i suppose what are the other causes that we know of of colorectal cancer alcohol tobacco um uh, sedentary lifestyle obesity uh, these are some of the other risk factors that have been uh, that they've attributed the shift towards a younger population. Diet is a part of the story. Genetics are definitely a part of the story. So th these are the things that we've been looking at. Uh, Phoebe, twelve fifteen. Let's talk spices and microbiome. Are the spices like those found in hot curries bad for the microbiome? No, they're good. They're great. Uh, curry is incredible because it's a blend of multiple different spices. You know. One of the things that's exciting about plant-based eating, one of the things that I love is that the herbs and the spices all come from plants. Like what animal product provides the flavor that we sprinkle onto our food? And so, um, and the things that have a really profound, powerful flavor, you are tasting a phytochemical. That's what you are actually tasting. And that, that phytochemical I mean, just categorically, when we look downstream, the herbs and spices, their phytochemicals are anti-inflammatory and they are healing. They are beneficial. So um, anything could be consumed to excess, Chuck. I mean, you know, you could always overdo it with something. You could do it with kale. But the point is that these varieties of herbs and spices, like particularly Eastern spices in India, <laughs> they're incredible. They're so good for us and they taste great too. Uh, here's a great question from Edith. Do polyps ever disappear on their own? This one came in at 1220. They might, they might. We, I've had, I've seen cases, I've seen cases of patients, um, that have, uh, multiple polyps. You go in expecting to find more and they're no longer there after they've made a lifestyle change. I do want one to make one point about this though. So so polyps can rise, they can regress. Not every single polyp will necessarily turn into cancer. There's There have to be the right climate or circumstances for that transformation to take place. But you, there's no way for you to know, and there's only one way to be safe, which is frankly to remove the polyp. But um, that being said, I, I do think that diet and lifestyle can be an important factor, but timing needs to be considered. I, I've seen a lot of patients, so... I've had a lot of patients who come to me and I do a colonoscopy and they have polyps and they go, oh, doc, that's so disappointing. I changed my diet. I'm eating the way that you described in fiber fueled. And I'm like, well, how long have you been doing that? And they say, well, the last 18 months. You have to understand these polyps are already starting to form even years in advance of when we can see them with our eye, right? On a cellular level, that transformation is already taking place. So you can't expect a dietary change to go into effect the second that you make that change. The effect is like banking interest year after year. The interest may start off small in year one, but by the time you get to year 20, you're rich. That's what you want. There you go. A uh, question from Alpine. This one comes up. We were just talking about uh, sauerkraut. And so that, that brings sodium into the equation. Alpine's question at 1224. Are you concerned about the sodium content that's found in fermented vegetables? Yeah, look, uh, the average American is over consuming. The average American is consuming sodium. We need to reduce our sodium consumption. But the 
the idea of reducing sodium consumption doesn't mean that we need to completely avoid moderate quantities of healthy fermented foods that have been demonstrated to have health benefits for us, right? Reduce the sodium intake by reducing your ultra processed food intake, by reducing your fried food intake, where 60% of the average American's calories, that's where they're getting their, their, their calories from is from ultra processed foods. So we need to contract that we don't need to be reducing our intake of moderate quantities of healthy foods that do contain some sodium. Um, I, I just, I, I think that to vilify sodium to the point that you say any food that contains sodium must inherently be bad is to um, fixate on a single nutrient and miss the bigger picture of the food. Is the food healthy? Are we nourishing our body? Are people thriving because they consume those foods? And if the answer is yes, then let's not be fixating on this micronutrient. You talk about like just focusing on one nutrient here that kind of brings the conversation of a reductionist view of health into the equation. And I know that that's something you and I actually spoke about when I was down there uh, building out the studio with you is, is how difficult it can be to kind of, for somebody who isn't a doctor to kind of navigate these health waters, what is and is not healthy, what's the right balance there when we tend to focus on that one thing. Uh, from a doctor's perspective, what, what is your take on this reductionist view of health and medicine? Well, I think, first of all, I think that I, I would applaud many of the people within the plant-based movement who actually have pioneered the idea that we need to have a bigger a bigger picture to health and not take a reductionist view. You know, T. Colin Campbell, to me, has been the pioneer who's out there beating the drum saying, don't look at the micronutrient, look at the food, what happens when you eat the food. And he is absolutely right. And we see far too often where we will reduce something to it's gluten, it's lectins, right? And then we're avoiding beans when like, because we're concerned about lectins when like we have quite clear studies that show us that among multiple different populations, people live longer with less disease, less heart disease, our number one killer, less cancer, our number two killer when they consume beans. Right. So I think it's important to not fixate on these micronutrients that we need to zoom out and look at the bigger picture with our food. What happens when real people eat this food? That's the question that every single one of us needs to ask. Now, myself and other people within the plant based community, we will beat this drum and we will say, don't be reductionist. T. Colin Campbell is right. Right. Like I'm, I'm saying it literally right now. And then it's a slippery slope. It's very easy to fixate on specific things. Like I could say saturated fat is bad, right? And the problem is that the average American is way over consuming saturated fat because they have far too many animal products in their diet. But to like actually say saturated fat is bad when in fact, if some people were consuming a small amount of saturated fat in moderation, that's not destroying their health. So we need to, again, see the bigger picture here. Uh, next week, I'm going to have the Shurzais, Dean and Aisha Shurzai on the show, and they're going to talk about exercise and the role that that plays with brain health. But I also think today exercise is an important part of the conversation that you and I are having. So let's take a question here from Colleen at 1225. Colleen wants to know how much does exercise or physical activity play into reducing the risk of colorectal cancer? It absolutely is part of the story. It absolutely part. And, and you know, th what's amazing about this, Chuck, is that exercise, even moderate amounts of exercise amounts that if I say to you, Hey, can you give me 15 minutes 
And I'm not talking about 15 minutes running 20 miles an hour through your neighborhood, right? I'm saying 15 minutes of a moderate exercise where you perhaps don't even break a major sweat. Can you give me that? I'm pretty sure the answer is yes. And I actually was a part of a study that we published recently in the journal Gut Microbes with people from the uh, University of Nottingham. Dr. Anna Valdez was the leader of the study. And what we found is that in this intervention study where people were asked to walk for 15 minutes, it actually caused a shift and a change in their gut microbiome that led to an increased production of short-chain fatty acids. There was no dietary shift. There was no dietary change. We weren't telling them to eat more fiber. 15 minutes of exercise changes the gut microbiome, produces more short-chain fatty acids. Short-chain fatty acids protect us from colorectal cancer. And when we look at the data, does exercise reduce our risk? The studies are saying yes. Let's take a question from Lori at 1224. This uh, kind of goes to the heart of what it was we were talking about last show. Uh, is there any connection between chronic constipation and colon cancer or polyps? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, sometimes people characterize constipation as being like you are retaining toxins. Um, and it actually goes back to a philosophy from the 1800s. Uh, I haven't seen any evidence that like constipation is the retention of toxins, but I do know that people feel better when their body is in rhythm. That is quite, quite indisputable. Um, I haven't seen anything, Chuck, that has directly connected constipation to colorectal cancer. It may be out there. I just haven't seen it, but I haven't seen that specifically. But I, I think that, you know, regardless of that, um, one thing that we do know that I think is very important for people to hear is that if you have a change in bowel habits, right? Like you were not constipated and now you are struggling with constipation. This is actually a reason to get a diagnostic colonoscopy. And the reason that we do it is not just to diagnose the constipation. It's that sometimes that's the way that colorectal cancer pre presents itself. So again, it's not necessarily that the constipation caused the cancer. It can be that the cancer caused the constipation. But the awareness that when you have a change in bowel habits, when you see blood in your stool, if you're anemic without an explanation, if you're low on iron without an explanation, if you're having fatigue and weakness without an explanation, these are reasons to get checked out and potentially consider a colonoscopy. So, uh, yeah, that happened to me right when I was beginning the show. I was still working in news and I was uh, actually in school at the time as well. And this was at the beginning of the exam room. I don't think I ever really talked about this on the show. Um, had so much stress in my life, so little sleep that I developed a, a bleeding ulcer and uh, lost a lot of blood un unbeknownst to me at the time. And it got to a point where um, I couldn't even stand up. I remember doing a live event. Uh, for the physicians committee and like literally basically collapsed backstage. And I thought, you know, like what is going on here? And then I wound up spending the next three days in the hospital, wound up having my first colonoscopy then at the age of 35. Um, and that was, that was a scary thing, you know, because I did think going into that, even though I had a lot on my plate in life, you know, I was eating a really healthy diet and then still, you know, ran into this obstacle. Um, and that, that was just, it was, it was a heck of a thing, but yeah, man, I mean, pay attention to those changes, uh, definitely pay attention into your changes. What you just said was spot on. I can tell you from a patient experience. 
Let's take a question here from Jennifer. We're just going to do a hard pivot here. Jennifer's question, this is just kind of a curiosity one. Why does Pepto-Bismol darken your stool? That's the bismuth. So <laughs> if, if you were to take bismuth in any form or variety, um, which bismuth is the active ingredient in Pepto-Bismol, Pepto-Bismol. So um, the bismuth will turn your stool black. Some other things that will turn your stool black, iron supplements. So like iron sulfate will turn your stool black. Um, uh, bismuth, blueberries. If you like consume a large quantity of blueberries, it could turn your stool black. So, and of course people know that beets can turn your stool red. <laughs> uh, all right, let's go back to, uh, nutrients here. Uh, we talked a little bit about, well, we talked about fermented foods. Kombucha always comes up in the conversation when we bring that up. Uh, Remy's question at 1232, since we had talked about salt, Remy's wondering about the sugar in kombucha and whether that could potentially be harmful. Well, most likely if you're drinking kombucha, most likely you're going to be purchasing it from the store. And what you need to do is you need to look at the number of grams of fiber, or I'm sorry, number of grams of sugar that exists within that kombucha. Um, kombucha that is more sour, you know, it's kind of like how a wine can be sweeter or it can be more dry. And kombucha that uh, is lower in sugar is going to be more dry, whereas the ones that they're cranking up the sugar, you know, getting into 15 grams of sugar or more. Um, those are the ones that it's going to taste sweeter. So, I mean, don't, let's not lose sight of the fact that the food industry wants to sell you something that you smack your lips and say, that tastes great. And therefore I go back to the store and buy it again. Right. So let's not lose sight of that. So it's in their interest to put sugar into these beverages. You just need to be conscious of it and pay attention to it. I want less than 15 grams of fiber in my, uh, less than 15 grams of sugar in my kombucha. If you make it at home, the sugar is consumed by the microbes. And so um, the acidity starts to rise and the sugar levels decrease. So if you make it at home, you control the amount of sugar that goes in there. And you also control how long you allow it to ferment. So if you basically stop fermenting it earlier on, it will be less acidic and more like a sweet tea. But as you allow it to go, it becomes less sweet and more acidic. And that's because the sugar is being consumed and turned into acid. You know what? Uh, we have a few people right now in the chat who are wondering about the home test for colorectal cancer screenings and how effective they are. Are they accurate or is the colonoscopy still the gold standard here? What would your advice be? Uh, so I, I think it's I think it's, it's a hugely important topic because there is a convenience problem. It, it is way too convenient to do an at-home test. And there has been um, unnecessary vilification of colonoscopy with like a uh, reporting that the risks of colonoscopy are exceedingly high. The, the risks of colonoscopy are not exceedingly high. In the medical practice that I was in, the gastroenterology practice that I was in, I had two partners. There were three of us. And from the time that I was there in 2016 up until recently, we had zero perforations. Zero. Like that's thousands of colonoscopies being done. Okay. So it's important to first understand the risks with colonoscopy. There are risks. They're exceedingly low and the benefits way out, out, uh, pace the risks with the at-home tests. I'm going to tell you how I use them. Okay. I actually use them to, uh, test people who are flat out. Like I'm not getting a colonoscopy. All right. If that's the way that it is, I would rather you do an at-home test than nothing at all. But we also need to be transparent and upfront about the downsides of these at-home tests. This is not an apples-to-apples -apples comparison. 
with colonoscopy. They are not the same thing, and they don't achieve the same thing. Colonoscopy is the number one test, by far the gold standard, for the detection of cancer. If cancer is there, you want to find it. Colonoscopy is the best test to do that. The second best test for doing that is the stool test, but the stool test has a miss rate of about 10%. So I'm talking about the Cologuard right now. The miss rate is about 10% for cancer. That means you literally have cancer. And the test gives you a false negative. That is that is Russian roulette. That is very dangerous. Because if you are that one in 10 chance where you actually have cancer and it is missed, then we have missed our opportunity to intervene on early stage colon cancer. And early stage colon cancer, Chuck, just so people understand, early you get a stage one colon cancer, your five-year survival is very close to 100%. But you get a stage four colon cancer and your five-year survival is very close to the bottom. Mm. So staging is critically important. If you can catch it early, you can cure it. If you can't catch it early, you got a problem. One last point real quick, Chuck, on this, on the at-home tests. You're waiting until you develop cancer. That's the problem. We're waiting until we develop cancer. These tests are not designed to detect polyps. Polyps are the precursor to cancer. If you can catch it as a polyp, which by the way, there's about a 15-year window, we think. If you can catch it as a polyp, during a colonoscopy, you can painlessly remove that polyp and it's over. It will never turn into cancer. Once you remove it during a colonoscopy, it is over. You have saved yourself from cancer. Flip side, if you do the at-home test, there is a massive miss rate. Like these tests are not designed to detect, detect polyps. They miss the vast majority of the polyps. So by missing the vast majority of polyps, you are missing the opportunity to intervene as a preventative tool. And instead you are again, waiting until you have cancer. I don't want to take that risk. This is why I had a colonoscopy myself. Obviously a topic of debate in the chat room today, but uh, we do have a number of roomies who have said, yeah, look, you know, I just got my screening came up clean and they're feeling great. We had somebody else write in say that they uh, had something turn up that was benign. They're still sleeping a little bit easier tonight. So, you know, I haven't really heard anybody in the chat room right now say that they regret the decision, um, but certainly, you know, it, it's still a topic of debate and that warrants, I think, further discussion, but we only have a few minutes remaining here in the show. So I want to bounce around and, and try to get to some other questions as well. By the way, I want to say hi to Kira, uh, who says, thank you, Dr. B. Uh, thank you to the exam room for talking about this today. She says it's a really important topic. And uh, also, uh, Carrie Carroll, uh, my supposed cousin who I've never met uh, is is watching today also says it's a really important topic. So thank you both for being uh, being here. Um, question from the roomies at 1241. Uh, do you recommend eating until a person is 80% full or all the way up to 100%? Yeah. So the 80% uh, full rule is called Harahachi Boo. And it's an idea that Dan Buettner described in the blue zones that he found in the Okinawans, uh, the blue zones in the Japan. And so this is this is like a cultural element that they have where they will eat until they're 80% full. Now, here's the problem that we have. The average diet in the United States is wildly devoid of fiber. Fiber activates our satiety hormones to tell me, tell us when we're full. So because it's missing the fiber we actually really struggle to know when to stop. And instead, what we're doing is we're loading up on ultra-processed foods that have actually been shown to 
force us to overeat, right? Because they like trigger us to attack our food and we eat so much of them that next thing you know, it's like we need the sweatpants and we need to be on the couch groaning and making noises, right? So do we need to eat until we're 80% full? Well, generally speaking for the average American, this is a great rule. Like you, if you're eating a lot of ultra processed foods, a lot of animal products, those don't have fiber. So if you eat until you're 80% full, you actually allow your body an opportunity to catch up to what you're doing and then tell you to stop, right? So if you stop at 80%, next thing you know, you're going to realize, oh, wow, that was actually like the 80% was actually 100%. That was actually the right time for me to stop. I'm just not overeating by stopping at 80%. But if you eat a high fiber diet, if you're eating a whole food plant-based diet, then you don't necessarily have to stop yourself at 80% because you can continue to eat until you're full. And your um, fiber content is going to activate those satiety hormones actually through short chain fatty acids. And then you're going to feel full naturally. And that's, that's actually the way that our body was designed to eat. The problem is that we've created these shortcuts where every single day people are consuming 60% of their calories from foods that did not exist a hundred years ago and 25% of their calories from animal products where like, if you went back to the way that we evolved, people weren't eating that way, clearly. So, and this is why we have to like create these rules to put in place for people to eat that way and not overeat. All right. Final question. And I want to end with a fun one. And honestly, Dr. B, we got to end with a fun one just because it's, it's you and me and that's what we do. Um, but this is a question from Sylvia and I would be stunned if there was an actual study done on this. So, I mean, good luck answering it, but Sylvia is wondering, does your poop smell less if you are eating a whole food plant-based diet? I mean, I would argue yes. <laughs> I would argue yes. So, um, so we all know that, uh, people who eat an excessive amount of meat, like the, so first of all, Chuck, the meat sweats have actually been documented. That's the a real sweats, thing. Yeah. That's a real thing. The meat sweats have actually been documented. Like people smell differently. They have a different body odor when they consume an excessive amount of animal products. So, uh, flip side in terms of our bowel movements, you actually will find a lot of, um, the sort of gas producing sulfur, uh, sulfur based compounds in animal products. And as a result of that, it can change the smell of our bowel movements. Um, it, also the fat content can change it as well. So, uh, I have not seen a study to like clearly say this yet, but it needs to be done. And perhaps that's something that I should be looking into. Ah, man, that is a, a fantastic idea. And uh, anything I can do to help promote getting that study off of the ground, just let me know. The world needs this answer. Um, and I can't uh, wrap things up today without saying thank you to all the roomies who left such wonderful comments after our last show, Dr. B. The last time you were here, we were talking about the color of poop. And I'm telling you, the feedback was off the charts, unlike anything that we had ever received here on the show before. I mean, JH said that it was the ultimate poop podcast that they had been waiting for. Didn't know that that was such a thing. Uh, Donna said, I love this so much, uh, much to my husband's dismay, but a good bowel movement is the best. Uh, Michael, God bless Michael, said, this episode made me hit the bell for this channel. I have only hit the bell on two other occasions. So 
Oh man, that's that's amazing. And uh, Nolene really loved the interview. Who knew poop could be so entertaining? Uh, clearly, Doctor B, you did. So uh, that's <laughs> that's why we did it. So if you guys haven't had an opportunity to check out the previous episode, what does your poop color mean? Ah, uh, definitely, you're gonna want to scroll back if you're listening to the podcast and check that out, or just uh, flip through the uh, Physicians Committee's channel on YouTube or the Facebook page and find that as well. Just a great, great episode, man. I had so much fun doing that with you, Doctor B. And uh, you mentioned that you got the cookbook coming up. What's the update? What's the release date? Uh, so the, the Fiber Fields cookbook is coming out May 17th. But I think actually, let me reveal this. This is a little bit of a secret that people don't know. But this is for you guys, the exam roomies, because you're loyal and you come and you hang out with me every month. I am revealing a new giveaway for people who have pre-ordered the cookbook this coming Monday. And it is going to be exciting and huge. So stay tuned. If you have pre-ordered the book, make sure that you're on my newsletter because that way you will get the email for sure. Like the problem with Instagram is that I don't know if you're going to see it. But um, if you're on my newsletter, I can get you the, the email. And with this big announcement coming Monday, March 14th, you are qualified. It is free because you pre-ordered the book. If you haven't pre-ordered the book, Pre-order the book and strap in for Monday, May 4, Monday, Monday, March 14th for the big reveal. We have huge things coming. I can't wait to share with you guys. It's going to be so good. Oh, that's fantastic. And you can get your pre-order in. You see the website and uh, his Instagram handle scrolling across the bottle. The plant uh, the plantfedgut.com is where you go. And you've got all of the links up there to pre-order from basically every bookseller known to man and every country known to man. I was really impressed on there last night. I was like, oh my goodness, I kind of want to go to Canada now just to order the book from, from uh, that link that you have up there, man. But uh, thank you so very much, Dr. B, for the time. Very exciting stuff. Can't wait for Monday's announcement. I have no idea what it is, but uh, I got my pre-order in, man. So I'm ready. Something really cool that you don't know about. Thank you everyone for hanging out today. Thank you for the activity in the chat box. I hope that this was at least helpful. I'm not here to push anything on you guys. I'm not asking you to do it with me. I'm here, frankly, to just empower you with information. And I hope that you recognize that my opinion as a gastroenterologist comes from a place of love and caring about you and really wanting to help you be the best version of yourself. And last thing, this is Dr. Bolsowitz signing off from the Charles Carroll Recruiting Studio. Thank you, everyone. <laughs> I have never had a studio named after me before. I had no idea that that was coming. I did not know that he was going to do that. As a really neat surprise. Thank you, Dr. B. And I guess that I'm going to have to go by the weight loss champion, Charles Carroll now, right? It's on my driver's license. Why not roll with it professionally as well? <laughs> so in all seriousness, it was an important discussion on the show today beyond a shadow of a doubt. So thank you to everyone who participated. And as a reminder, you can join us for the exam room live every Wednesday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on YouTube and on Facebook. Hang out with us. Hang out with the other exam roomies and myself in the chat. Ask your question live. But if you can't join us live, you can always send me your questions ahead of time as well. Find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Chuck Carroll WLC. Yes, Chuck. <laughs> 
next week on The Exam Room Live. Dr. Neil Barnard will be back answering your questions. So please join us if you can. We have links to the Physicians Committee's YouTube channel and Facebook page right now in the episode notes. And if you would like to check out the previous episode where Dr. Bolsowitz and I were talking about the color of poop and what that could mean for you, there is a link to that episode right now in the episode notes as well. Now, one more thing to note today about cancer. This is an interesting study that I wanted to share with you. We didn't get a chance to get into this during the show, but I really wanted to pass it along because really it's fascinating and I had never heard of this before. It turns out that taller people appear to be more likely to develop colorectal cancer. Let's head to the exam room news desk right now for the details. New research is showing that height could be a predictor for cancer. Scientists at Johns Hopkins pored over more than 280,000 colorectal cancer cases, finding that every four inches of height equates to a 14% increased risk of cancer and a 6% increased risk of having an adenoma or non-cancerous tumor. The study shows that overall, the tallest people have a 24% higher risk of cancer than the shortest individuals. The study adjusted for external factors such as age, family history, and finances. Researchers say further study is needed to definitively say why height matters in this case, though one hypothesis is that the size of the organs are bigger, and the bigger they are, the more chances there are for cells to mutate and possibly become malignant. The findings are published in the Journal of the American Association for Cancer Research. Now, here in the U.S., the average man is 5 feet 9 inches tall, while the average woman is 5 feet 4 inches tall. And based on the figures given in this study, men who are 6'1 or taller are at least 14% more likely to develop colorectal cancer. The same goes for women who are 5'8 or taller. It's a pretty interesting study. Now, the authors also stress here, though, that there are steps that everyone can take, regardless of how tall they are, that will reduce their risk of cancer. And those are the same steps that we talked about here on the show today with Dr. Bolsowitz. And you can find a link to that study right now in the episode notes. And for today, that is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you once again to Dr. Bolsowitz for being here and raising our health IQs when it comes to colorectal cancer. For everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based.